last Sunday we started talking about financial freedom and uh, we started dealing with this whole subject of success, prosperity, wealth and riches and how as believers we must relate to this. And uh, we define financial prosperity simply of being in a place where we are not controlled by money. The money no longer controls us, but we're in a place where we can really walk by faith and do everything that God's called us to do. Money doesn't dictate terms to us. We are financially free. How many of you like to be financially free? Amen. God bless you. Thanks. Um, just want to review what we did last Sunday. You know, we started by saying that, you know, we're going to cover several things. We want to talk about, you know, changing some of our mindsets, the wrong mindsets, the wrong ideas that many of us have. And we are in that phase right now. Then we're going to talk about the principles that God has for financial freedom. We're going to talk about some practical guidelines. We did some of them during our church camp last year. They're still available on our website. We'll cover some, some of those things. And we'll uh, believe God for financial breakthrough. And all of us can expect to see God work in this realm in our lives. Amen. How many of you believe that when God's word goes forth, it does not return to him void? Amen. So this series, the word of God is going forth concerning money, concerning finances, concerning success. I want each one of us to open our hearts and receive that God's word will accomplish its purpose in this area of our lives. Amen. So it's not just a series that we're going to intellectually grasp, but I want us to open our hearts and say, God, I want this word to be fulfilled in my life. I want to see changes. I want to see breakthroughs. I want to see growth. I want to see increase in this area of success, prosperity, uh, and financial increase. Last Sunday we talked, as we began the series, we dealt with God and wealth. You know, what, how does God relate to wealth? Four important facts we talked about last Sunday, that God is not averse to wealth. God is not allergic to wealth. Amen? He created all these things. His streets are paved with gold. Secondly, we said that God does bless His people with success. God does release success and prosperity and well-being into the lives of His people. Third, we said that God has taught us how to be successful, which means that He's interested in seeing us prosper and be successful. And fourthly, we said that God hates poverty. God loves the poor, but He hates poverty. God loves the sinner, but He hates the sin. He loves the sick person, but He hates that sickness because that's the work of the devil. Amen? This morning, I just want to go through a little fast. I have a rather lengthy message, I have to warn you. Uh, but please bear with me. I want to talk about believers' misconceptions on wealth. You know, many of us as believers, we have a wrong understanding, some wrong ideas about wealth, about success, about prosperity. And we want to deal with that. So get ready to be changed this morning. Amen? We're going to deal with some of the misconceptions. You know, one of the principles of hermeneutics or interpreting scripture is this. That any verse of any scripture has to be interpreted with scripture. You know, when you want to deal with a subject and what does the Bible say about this? It's so important to understand it from Genesis to Revelation. Rather than taking one or two passages and saying this is all that God said. That's why whenever I try to teach or study the word, I try to look at what did God say in entirety on the subject rather than coming to conclusions based on one or two pieces of reference. Martin Luther said, Scripture is its best interpreter. Allow Scripture to interpret itself. Amen? But many of us, what we've done is we've taken an isolated passage or a couple of scriptures and formed theologies, formed ideas concerning wealth and riches and so on, which are really wrong, wrong mindsets concerning wealth, success, prosperity, because we've taken isolated references and tried, built our theology on that. Or we've heard somebody else say something 
And so got, we are going to deal with that wrong mindsets, wrong ideas concerning success, prosperity, wealth, and riches. The first wrong notion or misconception that we must deal with is this, that many believers think that success motivation and profit motive are ungodly. Many believers think that to, be, to have a motivation for success, to desire to be a success, to desire to make profit is an ungodly thing. And I remember last year I was talking to a group of, at a, at a, a group of mostly young urban people, some older people, at a, bio, at a training institute. And you know, I was called to speak on faith and economics, and I had just a few hours with them, so I wanted to go straight into the subject. So I said, you know, okay, let's begin. First of all, we must understand that profit motive is not wrong. Immediately there was an objection. And I was shocked because these were urban, young, young urban Christians. And I thought that they would, you know, agree that, you know, it's perfectly fine to want to succeed, to want to prosper. And there was an objection. And so I had to kind of go back and deal with some of the foundational things. Many believers think it's wrong to have profit motive. Why? Because of scriptures like this. 1 Timothy 6, 3 to 11. And I'm just going to give you passages. We won't have time to turn into everything, but just please listen with me. In 1 Timothy 3, 6 to 11, uh, Paul says, you know, uh, stay away from those who preach, uh, who do not preach the doctrine of godliness, who teach that, you know, godliness or religion is a means to make uh, for gain, for profit. And he said, godliness with contentment is great gain. And uh, be careful if you desire to be rich because those who desire to be rich can fall into a lot of temptation and, and pierce themselves through many sorrows because the love of many is the root of all evil. And he continues this way. And then he, he says in verse 17, you know, tell them that, you know, those who are, who are wealthy not to trust in riches. So many people take this passage and say, you know, Paul said, don't desire to be rich. So don't desire anything. I have no desires. I don't desire to succeed. And so we actually kill every drive for success, every motivation for success, every desire to make profit. We kill it because we say godliness with contentment is great gain. Be content with where you are. Don't desire for anything more. But what is Paul saying? Now listen, do we as a church teach godliness? Yes or no? We teach godliness. We preach the doctrine of godliness that we must be godly. There's no compromise in that. We do not use godliness as a means to become rich. We do not use religion to make profit. A lot of things that you receive are free. Amen. All right. So we don't use religion as a means to make money. We're not doing that. But the main thing that Paul is teaching us in 1 Timothy 6 is this, do not trust in riches. He's not saying kill the drive to be successful. Kill the profit. But don't, he's not saying that. You know, another passage sometimes people use is... Uh, in Jeremiah 45, 5, the prophet Jeremiah goes and speaks to Baruch. And he says, you know, seekest thou great things for thyself, seek them not. And so, say, you know, you flip your Bible, your Bible pops open in Jeremiah 45, 5. It means you say, you know, okay, God is telling me not to desire for a better job, not a desire to be successful. No, 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 no. And we misinterpret that. But God was giving a specific word to a specific man in a specific situation, which is not applicable to everybody. What does God say concerning this old prophet motive? Let me just quickly summarize for you. So on the one hand, we have scriptures like this. If you only look at them, it will kill your drive to success. But you need to look at everything that God said on the subject. What else did God say? Well, in Luke chapter 19, verses 12 to 23, and also in Matthew 25, when Jesus gave the parable of the talents, you and I know the story, right? The parable of the, of the talents. Jesus began that parable by saying, so is the kingdom of God. Meaning, 
This is how the kingdom of God is. This is the principle of the kingdom. What is it? He said, it's like a nobleman, a rich man who gave, you know, one of his servants ten, uh, um, ten pieces of money to another little, more, little sum of money. To another, another smaller sum of money. He went away and he told them, Luke 19, 13, do business till I come or trade with this money till I come back. And when he came back, he asked them to give an account. So one of them said, you know, Lord, you gave me so much, I've doubled it. What did he say? You ungodly servant. No, he said, good and faithful. To the other man who got five, he said, I've doubled it. He said, good and faithful. To the one who said, you know, I had no desire for success, Lord. I had no motivation for profit. I put it in my pocket and kept it safe. Here is your money. He said, you unprofitable servant. At least you should have put it in the bank and got some interest out of it. Who said it? Jesus. It's a principle of the kingdom. So I want us to understand that God desires us, encourages us to have the motivation for success. Have the motivation to look for profit. Can you say amen? It's not an ungodly thing. It's a principle of the kingdom. Amen. And look at some more scriptures. You know, in, in, in Isaiah 48, 17, God says, I am the Lord who teaches you to profit. It's in the Bible. God is the one who teaches us to make profit. So how can it be an ungodly thing if you desire to profit? In uh, Deuteronomy 8, 18, God says, I am the Lord who gives you the power to get wealth. If he is the one who gives us the power to get wealth, then of course he can increase our power to get wealth, which is becoming more successful, which is becoming increasing your ability to make profit. Then it's from God. It cannot be an ungodly thing. Now look at some men in the Bible. What is the one characteristic of David that you are familiar with? David was a, was a man after God's own heart. David was a man after God's own heart. Acts 13.22. Now look at David. You know, he's been out in the wilderness singing psalms. He was, he was a hill song, singing all the psalms to God, you know, and doing all that. And suddenly, God takes him out of hill song, or the song of the hills, you know, wherever. And God, you know, his dad comes to him and says, David, your brothers are at war. This is 1 Samuel 17. They're fighting the Philistines. Can you take some lunch for them? Just go see how they're doing. So David shows up at the army camp. And he sees all the armies of Israel. And he hears Goliath coming and throwing out his challenge. And then, you know, he's hearing the talk among the soldiers. Here's what the soldiers are talking. They're saying, you know, David, uh, they're saying, you know, King Saul has promised that if anyone goes and fights Goliath and kills him, King Saul has promised that he would give him a lot of riches. He will uh, give him his daughter in marriage. And he will exempt his father's house from paying taxes. Now that caught David's attention and so David goes back to another group of soldiers he wants to verify what he heard he goes back to another group of soldiers and says hey tell me what will happen to the man who kills Goliath and they tell him the same thing he says King Saul said the man who goes and kills Goliath he, King Saul is going to make him wealthy he's going to give his daughter in marriage he's going to exempt his house father's house from taxes David couldn't believe his ears. By this time, his brothers see him, uh, uh, you know, getting all this information. They, they rebuke him saying, you're supposed to be in Hillsong, writing songs, taking care of the sheep. What are you doing here? And now, you know, but David couldn't help it. He goes a third time to another group of soldiers and double checks. He says, you know, tell me what will happen to the man who kills Goliath? And they tell him the same thing. Can you see the trend? Maybe there is a, a motivation for reward here. Come on. You're not that spiritual. Amen. 
I mean, like he's checking this out. What will happen to the man who kills Goliath? Saul will make him rich, give his daughter in marriage, exempt his house from taxes. David says, I'm going for it. He doesn't say that, but that's the implication. It's in 1 Samuel 17 chapter. But now David does what you and I do. He says, I come against you in the name of the armies, uh, in the name of the God of Israel, uh, uh, whom you have defied, because God is going to give to me. In his heart, he's saying, God, thank you for that reward. Amen. He was driven by the reward. But he had faith in God to get it. Are you listening this morning? It's in your Bible. And God called David a man after my own heart. There is nothing wrong for you to be motivated by a temporal reward. And to use your faith in God to get it. David did it. I'm preaching hard on this because I need to knock that stronghold down. Amen. The religious strongholds we've built in our minds. Thinking that prophet motive is ungodly. Think about you know, Nehemiah. Nehemiah said, the God of heaven, Nehemiah 2.20, the God of heaven will prosper us, therefore we will arise and build. We will labor because we know prosperity comes from heaven. Proverbs 31, woman. Proverbs 31.16, one of her characteristics is this, that she's prophet driven. Proverbs 31.16 says, she considers a field, buys it, and from her prophets, she plants a vineyard. And God says, she is a virtuous woman. I want you to see that being driven by success... Having a motivation for success, having a motivation to be profitable is not ungodly. Amen. And it's perfectly fine to use your faith in God to reach the goal that God has designed for you. Whether it's building the walls of Jerusalem, whether it's going out to kill Goliath, or to build a successful business, or to be prosperous as a professional, or whatever God's assignment for your life is, it's an, uh, in, in the earthly realm, but it's perfectly right for you to use your faith in God to see it happen here on earth. Amen. It's not ungodly. Now, competition is right, but it must be in the right places. For example, you know, can you imagine if you as a believer, you're, you're standing on the starting line of the 100 meters dash, you're St. John about to run the Olympics, you know, and you say, I have no desire for success. Your, your company says, do you want to win? No, I just want to participate. You might as well go sit down, you know. Listen, there's a place where you must be driven to succeed. That's going to bring the best out of you. But you know what most believers do? They use competition in the wrong place. They bring it into the house of God. And that's the wrong place to compete. Because in the house of God, we are co-workers, not competitors. Amen? We labor together. It's not no longer a question of you know, who can preach better, who can sing better, who can you know, do this stuff better. No, no. In the house of God, it's the wrong place for competition. But out there, you compete. Misconception number two. It is wrong to say wealth or money for the future. You know, many believers think that it is wrong to save for the future. Why? Because Jesus said in Matthew 6 verses 19 onwards, he said, you know, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust and falling stock markets destroy your money. But lay for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither stock markets nor moth nor rust can affect your wealth. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And then he continued, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon, which is the God of money. So don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will take care of its own self. So believers read this passage and they say, you know, see my bank account is zero. Because I'm practicing what Jesus said. I do not leave anything for up, up for myself. All my treasures are in heaven. How do you get it there? I don't know, FedEx or Amex or I don't know. Okay. And then we read the parable in Luke 12, verse 16 to 34. We, we know the story of a rich man whose, uh, whose land yielded plentifully and, uh, 
He said, you know, what can I do with all this harvest? Let me pull down my barns. Let me build greater and I will store my crops. And he said to, you know, said to his own soul, you know, soul, you've got many goods laid up for many years. It's saved for the years to come. Take ease, eat, drink, merry. And God spoke to him. Verse 20 of Luke 12, he says, Fool, this night your soul be required of you. Whose will all these things be? Verse 21, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And Jesus continues with the same thing in Matthew 6 of, of seeking first the kingdom. So we read these passages and immediately we see, you know, see, if you're saving money, God is going to call you a fool. Because that's what he did to this rich man. And so we think it's wrong to save money. Well, but you've got to interpret what Jesus said in Matthew 6, and you've got to interpret about the, the, what Jesus taught about the parable of the rich man in the rest of Scripture. What do we find in the rest of Scripture? Well, how many of you believe that Joseph was blessed by God with the ability to interpret dreams? Was it God or the devil? You sure? So Joseph interpreted dreams by the gift of God. And then, you know, once he interpreted the dream saying that there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, how many believe that God gave him the wisdom to find the solution to the problem? Did God give him the wisdom or was it the devil? God. What was the solution? During seven years of plenty, every year, one-fifth, 20%, keep it, store it, save it. So was he an un doing an ungodly thing? No, God gave him the wisdom to do that. He was storing. He was saving for a time of famine. He knew it was up ahead. He was saving. And God didn't say, Joseph, you are a man full of unbelief. Don't you have faith that I'll take care of you during famine? Of course he had faith. That's why he was saving. Amen. And look at other scriptures. Deuteronomy 28.8 says, The Lord will command the blessing on you in your storehouses. What's a storehouse? That's where you keep all your surplus, your excess. In those days, they had storehouses. In our days, we call it bank accounts. But they serve the same purpose. And what is God going to bless? Your storehouses. You know the Bible says you're your brother's keeper. So just turn around and make sure he's awake. Keep your brother right. Just, I know it's really hot out there. But, but God is going to command his blessing on our storehouses. Where are you safe? Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 tells us, you know, honor the Lord with your possessions. With the first fruits of all your increase, so will your barns be filled with plenty. Barns are places of storage. He said, God will bless it and increase it. Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 8, God tells us, you know, go to the ant. Learn a lesson from the ant. What lesson does he want us to learn? He says, look at the ant. It gathers, it doesn't have a leader. It doesn't have a captain. But it gathers its food in summer during harvest time, preparing for the winter. And God says, I want you to learn from the ant. What's it doing? It's saving for a time ahead. So is saving wrong? Are you all with me? Yes or no? Is saving wrong? No. Thank you. All right. All right. Sorry. <laughs> Proverbs 13, 22 says this. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. A good man leaves an inheritance for his grandchildren. Now, if it was most of us believers, we will tell our grandchildren, I have followed Jesus' principle. I've laid up nothing for myself on earth. If you want your inheritance, meet me in heaven. Because I laid it all up in heaven. But Proverbs says, a good man lays up an inheritance for his children's children. Meaning, he did something. He saved. He invested. He kept something unto his grandchildren. So, Matthew 6, of not laying up treasures for us on earth. The parable of the rich fool, the rich man that Jesus called a fool, has to be interpreted in the light of all of this. The 
key thing that Jesus wants to communicate to us is that we must put our heart on the things of heaven. Amen. We do not trust in riches. Our heart must be rich toward God while you do the right things here on earth. Are you with me? Amen. Number three, misconception number three. To be a true believer, I must give up all earthly things. Really, many of us think that. I thought that. I thought if, if I really want to follow Jesus, I must have nothing to do with the world. I must not have any earthly thing. You know, where, uh, you know just, just white shirt, white pant, white shoes, white sling bag, nothing else. Now, I thought that. I thought that, that, that's what it means to follow Jesus. You know, give up everything else. Why? Because we read scriptures like this. You know, Jesus said, no man can do, serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. Choose. Okay, so God, I won't serve mammon, I only serve you. So we think implicitly that therefore it means I have nothing to do with material things. i got to give it all up. And then we read about Jesus in Matthew 8.20. Jesus said, you know, somebody told Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus said, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So we think, i got to be like Jesus. So I, you know, I, I, I don't have anything to do. No place. But understand why Jesus said it. Because for three and a half years, he was an itinerant minister. He was going from place to place. So he wasn't sleeping in the same bed every night. But don't forget that his mother and all of his stepbrothers had a house. Which was his house. His mother and family were not following Jesus saying, The foxes have, ho have holes. The birds of the air have nests. But we have nowhere to lay our heads. They were not saying that. Only Jesus was saying that. Are you understanding me? So anytime Jesus could have gone back to his house where his mother and stepbrothers was, brothers and sisters were staying, that he could lay. But because he was an itinerant minister, he was not sleeping in the same place every night. He was moving around place to place. So he said, you want to follow me, don't expect to sleep in the same bed every night because I'm traveling. Amen? So we read scriptures like this and we think, you know, we must totally disconnect from the world. Or, you know, in, in Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, if you, if you desire to come after me, you've got to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Uh, Luke 14, 33. I'm just going through these scriptures. If you do not forsake all, you can't be my disciple. 1 John 2, 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Or, you know, James 4, 4. Where it says, you know, if you love the world, if you have friendship with the world, you can't be a friend of God. So these are scriptures we read and immediately we say, okay, that means I should have nothing to do with this world. But what about the other scriptures? What else did Jesus say? Well, here are the other things that Jesus said. He said in John 17, verses 15 through 18, he said, Father, don't take them out of the world, but as you have sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. World where? Into business, into arts, into entertainment, into politics, into, in, into education. Go into the world. That's the world. So if you're going into business, obviously you've got to connect yourself with some worldly things. If you're going to politics, obviously you've got to connect yourself with what we consider worldly. Amen. He said, I'm sending you into the world. Not just disconnect from everything. And you know, Jesus, uh, uh, the other one we read in Luke 19, Jesus told in the parable, he said, do business till I come. Be engaged with the world till I come. Do business. Engage with the world. So these are the other things that Jesus also said. Peter said in Ma Ma Mark 10, 28 to 30, you know, Peter one day, he heard about this rich man 
who came to Jesus. He said, Lord, I've kept all your commandments in Mark 10. Jesus said, you know, there's only one thing you lack. Sell all that you have. Come follow me. And this man went away very disappointed because he had so much wealth. And that's when Jesus said, it's so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. All this happening and Peter tries to get a little pity party going for himself. He says, Lord, I have left every, have left everything and followed you. Peter turns around to him, meaning to say, I'm no man's debtor. And he tells Peter, Peter, there is no man who has left houses or lands or fathers or mothers for my sake who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. In other words, I will be no man's debtor. You can say you leave everything. I'm ready to give it back to you a hundred times in this life. And I will give you eternal life. Amen. Now you say, but you know, how come I'm not getting a hundredfold? Because you don't expect it. Because we have been so trained religiously thinking that to follow Jesus, we've got to give everything up. We cannot have any of this on the earth. But Jesus said, if you give it up, I'm, I'm, my intention is to bring it back to you a hundredfold in this life. Amen. So the right balance is this, you know, as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 7, 29 to 31. He says, you know, I, I tell you, brothers, the time is so short that those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not, they did not rejoice. Those who buy, who do business as though they did not possess. Those who use this world as not misusing it for the form of this world is passing away. So that's the, the way to live where you have all these things, but they don't control you. They don't dominate your life. Are you with me? I'm going fast. Are you still with me? Amen. I'm on point number four. The fourth misconception the believers have is this. Just enough is enough to pray for more is not pleasing to God. You know, we all begin in a place of not having not enough. We, you know, we pray and God brings us to a place of just enough. And then when you're in the place of just enough, you're so afraid to tell God, God, can you please give me more than enough? Because we think that to... Ask God for more than enough is an ungodly thing. After all, didn't Jesus say, give us this day our daily? Don't ask for butter. Just your daily bread. Jesus said, pray like this. Give us this day our daily bread. Or my God will supply all your need. Singular, only one need at a time. No, that's just the King James Version. And we think, okay, God only supplies my need. He will not give anything more. So implicitly we think, you know, I should not ask God for more than enough. Afraid to do that. We think if we do that, God will say, you um, worldly guy, what do you mean asking me for more than enough? Aren't you happy giving you a daily bread? But what does the rest of the word say? I mean, there are just so many scriptures. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says this, that God says, I will, you know, uh, if you honor the Lord with your substance, the first fruits of all your increase, your barns will be filled with plenty. And your vats will overflow with new wine. What did God promise for the tithe? He said, bring all the tithes in the storehouse and I will open the windows of heaven and just give you just enough to get by. He didn't say that. He said, I'll open the windows of heaven so that you will not have room enough to receive them all. Are you listening? God is the God of more than enough. He said in Joel 2.26, my people shall live in plenty and praise the name of the Lord their God. Amen. His name is El Shaddai. El Shaddai means God who is more than enough. Amen. That's why when he, you know, when Elijah, through Elijah, when the widow woman's little jar of oil was multiplied, he didn't just give her just enough oil to get out of debt. He gave her oil to live the rest of her life. When he multiplied the five loaves and two fishes, he just didn't make enough plates for the number of people there. He made that plus 12 baskets overflowing. When he 
told Peter to throw out his net and catch the fish in Luke 5. He didn't give him four pieces of fish, one for him, his wife, his mother-in-law, and his child. But he gave him a net-breaking, boat-sinking load of fish. He's the God of more than enough. And James chapter 1 says, you know, if you ask God, God will give because God gives to all men. He gives liberally without grudging. God is a liberal God in the sense in giving. Amen. So we need to discard this wrong notion that I always have to live in the land of just enough. And get ready to move into the land of more than enough so that not only will you have enough for yourselves, but you'll have plenty to turn this world upside down for Jesus. Amen. That you'll have enough to go and bless the needy with, to do something of significance here on earth before you get to heaven. God's a God of more than enough. Number five. The wrong notion that many believers have is this. It is wrong to invest money for gain. Here's another wrong notion many believers have. Why? Because we read scriptures like this, Exodus 22-25. God says, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender. You shall not charge them interest. Then in Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20, God says, you will not charge interest to your brother. Interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner, you may charge interest. But to your brother, you will not charge interest. Then we read Psalm 15, 5. It says that, you know, who can enter the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands, pure heart, who, has, who does not put out his money to usury. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Proverbs 28, 8 says this. One who increases his possessions by usury and extortion gathers it for him who pities the poor. So we read these scriptures and say, you know, so don't make any investments. Don't give out your money for interest. Well, what is the right thing? What do the rest of scriptures say? Therefore, so that we can understand these scriptures in the light of the rest of them. What did Jesus say? The same parable we refer to in Luke 19, Matthew 24, Matthew 25. Jesus said, at least you should have given your money to the bank to get some interest. So somebody has to give it if you're going to get it. Amen? So there's nothing wrong for you to make profit by interest. Jesus said that's a principle in the kingdom. There's nothing wrong with that. So how do I understand what, what other things he said? Well, first of all, in the Old Testament, the instruction was for your own brother, for somebody in your own family, don't charge interest. Do good to them. But to a foreigner, charge interest. Are you listening? So to help somebody of your own, hey, bless them. You lend them some money. Let me use it. Let them give it back to you without interest. Be comfortable. There's nothing wrong if you're dealing with somebody outside. You charge them interest, you're fine. He didn't say that was bad. And this whole concept of usury, we, in our English language, it is e the equivalent word is interest. But Webster's Dictionary, in the biblical context, explains it this way. That in the biblical context, the word usury simply means to charge interest above the normal, which is extortion, which is oppression. Meaning, you're taking advantage of that person's situation, and instead of charging the normal interest, you're charging him much more than that, that is usury in the biblical context. That is extortion. Are you with me? And God says in Psalm 15, 5, Proverbs 28, the verses we read, doing that is wrong. Amen. So there's nothing wrong biblically to use your money and uh, get interest. Now, I want to go through the rest of these things, a few more points very, very quickly, just touch upon them. Number six is this. Misconceptions about wealth, success, prosperity, riches. Number six. A poverty image pleases God and will win God's favor. Many of us think that we can impress God with our poverty image. 
what does do I mean by poverty image? You know, I wear torn clothes, torn slippers, don't wash my clothes for two weeks, just have a sling bag. I'm not against people who have sling bags, but, you know, I'm upset with this whole poverty image that people try to create. I've heard of pastors, when their donors come from U.S., they'll go riding on a cycle, but actually in the house they have, you know, big cars and all of that. They create a poverty image in front of their donors. This is true. And we are so bound in this religious mindset thinking that a poverty image will impress God. God will feel sorry for me. And somehow he'll give me something because you know of how humble and poor I appeared before him. After all, didn't Jesus say, blessed are the poor in spirit. First beatitude, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Not blessed are the poor. They're two different things. To be poor in spirit means to be in a place of continual desiring for more in the spirit. That means you've got, you're full of God, but you're hungry for more. That's being poor in the spirit. You have all of God, but you want more. Blessed are these people. They are the ones who are going to experience the kingdom. James 2.5 does say that God has chosen those who are poor in this world, but rich in faith. Yes, he's chosen them. But you know that throughout scripture you see that God wants us to live up to our inheritance. Amen. He wants us to live up to our inheritance. Be the kind of people I've made you to be. That's throughout scripture. In his dealings with the people in the Old Testament, in his dealings with people in the New Testament, he wants us to be what he called us to be, what he has blessed us to be. So this poverty image does not impress God. We need to get rid of it. Number seven. It is wrong to wear gold, dress well, and enjoy life. That's a misconception. Now we use scriptures from 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, 1 Peter 3, 3 to 5, where Paul is writing to women. He says, you know, you must dress modestly. And of course, modesty is important. Uh, and, you know, don't emphasize on the braiding of the hair and all of that. But what's the essence of what he's saying? He's saying, he didn't say don't do those things. But it's got to be the hidden man of the heart that you focus on. Amen. It's the inner life that you must focus on. But please do something with the outer man. I won't spend more time on that. Now, every road, most roads have ditches on either side. Bangalore roads have ditches in the middle. But that's different. Most roads have ditches on the either side. That means you stay on this road, you'll be safe. If you go off either extreme, you'll fall into the ditch. So we've dealt with the ditch on one side. I want to deal with the ditch on the other side of the road. Where people who have supposedly have great faith in God fall into. Here are some of the things that we fall into. Number eight. I live by faith so I do not need to work. That's a misconception. Oh, I have faith in God so I don't have to work. Excuse me. Faith in God is good. And you need faith in God, especially in these times, to keep your work. To keep your job. It takes greater faith to do that these days. Amen. Come on, say amen or something. So I think the people who are working... Keeping their jobs have greater faith. But, you know, we think that, you know, okay, I live by faith so I don't need to work. But what does the word say? Several scriptures. First Timothy 4, 11 and 12. Paul says, you lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your own hands. And to the same Thessalonians, I think they had a problem with this because he writes once again in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 10. He says, you know, I'm telling you, if there is a brother who's walking disorderly, tell him. If he does not work, he's not, he has no right to eat. That's scripture. Amen? And Ephesians 4, 29, he says, you know, you work with your own hands. Do what is good so you can have something to give to those who are in need. 
So great faith doesn't simply mean you don't work. It means you work to demonstrate your faith. Are you with me? Last two. Number nine. Here's a misconception some believers have. God will bless me anyway, so I do not need to acquire knowledge and wisdom. Now some of us, we think, you know, all I'll do is just read my Bible. Please read your Bible a lot. Get the revelation of it. But also get knowledge and understanding how to live this life. Are you with me? That means if you're a businessman, learn as much as you can about your area of business. If you're an engineer, learn everything you can about your engineering profession. Doctor, just learn. Pursue knowledge and understanding in this world. Why? Because what does wisdom do? Proverbs, the 8th chapter, I'm just going to pick a couple of verses. We can spend a lot of time on this. But Proverbs 8, 12, wisdom says, you know, I wisdom, I dwell with prudence, and I get knowledge and understanding. What does wisdom do? Wisdom motivates you to acquire knowledge and understanding. Wisdom does not say, all I need to do is read my Bible. Wisdom says, acquire knowledge and understanding. Are you listening? That means get the best education you can. If you can get a master's, go for a master's. If you can get a PhD, go for it. Get all the training that you can in this world. How to live this life. Because that's what wisdom will motivate you to do. Wisdom will motivate you to acquire knowledge and get understanding. And what is the benefit of it? Proverbs 8, 21. Wisdom says, I will cause those that love me to inherit wealth. So wisdom leads you to a place of wealth. But prior to that, wisdom drives you, motivates you to acquire knowledge and understanding. Are you listening? Proverbs 24, one more reference. Proverbs 24, 3 and 4 says, Through wisdom a house was built, by, by understanding it is established, by knowledge. Its chambers are filled with treasures. Meaning, this is how you get wealth. You must have knowledge. Amen. But so many of us believers are so foolish. We say, all I'll do is read my Bible and I will get the wisdom. But the Bible tells you, go acquire knowledge. Go get understanding about what you're doing. A wise man finds out the knowledge of witty inventions, Proverbs says. So, let us not come to, let us not have this wrong idea thinking that, you know, as a believer... I just have faith in God. I just read my Bible and God will take care of it. No, you have to get knowledge. You have to get understanding of the way this world works. We are not elevating it, but we're bringing the higher knowledge of the Word of God into the realm of this world. Are you understanding me? The 10th one, the last one I close, say, tell your neighbor he's about to close. The last one I want to say is this, that God is obligated to take care of me because I've forsaken all for His sake. Now, some of us have this wrong idea. You know, I love God very much. I've given up everything for him. I'm serving God. So God is obligated to take care of me. And I thought that. But then I found out God is not obligated to take care of you. God is obligated to his word. And as long as you are following his word, he will bless it. But if you don't do what his word says, he can't bless it. Are you with me? We just think automatically God will bless. No. Are you doing what his word says? Are you following the principles of his word? Because he said, I will watch over my word to confirm it. Amen? So we should not have the wrong notion, the other side of the ditch, thinking that, you know, God will just bless me anyway. Well, are you doing His word? Are you following the principles of His word? Are you obeying His word? Because God blesses that. Amen? So what we've done this morning, and thank you for being so patient here, is that we've dealt with ten wrong notions that many believers have concerning wealth, riches, success, prosperity. We must get rid of these things. And come to a place where we say, God, I love you and you alone above everything else. You are the center of my focus. You are Alpha and Omega in my life. There's no, no compromise on that. But God, 
I want to love you enough for you to place in me abundance so that I can impact the world around me. Amen. Can we come to a place like that? God, I love you enough so that I want to be a success. Not for myself. I want to be a success to glorify you. To make you look good on earth. To manifest your glory on earth. Lord, you, you're God not, not only of just enough, but you're God of more than enough. God bless my life with more than enough. Not so that I just spend it on myself and greediness, but God that I can just bless anyone that I desire to. I can bless them and let them know it is God doing it. Do that for me. Will you have the courage to be that kind of a person? Will you have the courage to say, God, bless me, prosper me, so that, God, I can impact my world. Get rid of all this religious thinking that is crippling you, limiting you, keeping you from being what God wants you to be on this earth. Amen. We trust that this message was a blessing to you. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at apcwo.org. Also, visit our website www.apcwo.org for additional resources. Thank you for listening and God bless you.